Star Wars fun for everyone, especially me. I like the sound of that. Hey everybody, welcome to Star Wars Fun for Everyone, especially me. I'm your host, Tom Sutton. It's time to talk chapter two of the Book of Boba Fett. Oh, what a chapter. It was amazing. So before we get to that, I just want to talk a little bit about the theme song because um, I think coming out of the first episode, I was like, yep, pretty good. I liked I liked the music. Um, I felt that the the score for you know most of the episode that was not done by uh, Ludwig Göransson was like okay but the themes were good strong but I wasn't in love exactly um, but uh, yeah during the week I, I kind of felt like oh I wonder wonder if any of it's on Spotify yet and what do you know the uh, the main theme was there so I thought I'll put that on and I think that my my little bit my reservation early on was that so for example like the mandalorian main theme um feels to me like very much like a, a kind of a remix of another of an ennio morricone piece of music so you know the like woo 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 to me was very much just him kind of doing his own version of you know um i felt like it was just too much of a copy kind of but it's so good that you, you yeah of course i'm um, like everyone else i love it now um and i gotta say i had the same reaction to this one um all the kind of like these kind of like chanting male voices the oh Home kind of stuff. Um, there's quite a lot of that in um, Ennio Morricone's soundtracks for the for his westerns. You know, we can fight, all that kind of stuff. It so it kind of felt like uh, Ludwig just went like, yeah, it went pretty well copying uh, that music before. I might uh, copy another one. Uh, so having said that, I've now listened to that uh, main theme for the Book of Boba Fett. I don't know, 10, 15 times. I love it. I'm sorry, I just can't, I can't not love it. It's just, re it's, a, it's really well written. And there's, um, uh, it's, there's a note in it that like starts out of key and then like gets pulled back into key kind of, which, where it goes this like, dun, dun, boom. And it's, uh, yeah, really cool like that. So, even though I think it's a little bit of a cheap rip-off <laughs> of classic Western um, themes that we've heard before, um, if you're going to do it well, then uh, why not, I guess. All right. So, let's get into it. The Book of Boba Fett, Chapter 2. Um, the internet reactions to Chapter 1 were mixed. Some people were really into it. Some people were not. And some people were in the middle. Um, I personally really liked it, but I could understand why people felt like it wasn't quite like the the king hit they were kind of hoping for. Um, I think that because you're telling two, uh, two stories, two timelines sim simultaneously, you're not going to make as much progress in either of them each, each week. 
um, which cause, could cause people to get a bit impatient. Um, but I, I, I didn't dislike that. I, I thought that there was enough to go on. Um, but I did understand that, uh, like, the first episode of The Mandalorian, I mean, it was just kind of like it had the wow factor of being the first live-action Star Wars television episode of all time. And it had the wow factor of Baby Yoda landing in the, at the end of the episode. Um, second series, that Crate Dragon episode was big, you know, big. And you had the of, officially, you know, the, the kind of um, the confirmation of the return of Boba Fett at the end of that episode. So again, big finish. And uh, the first episode of the Book of Boba Fett was... Uh, it didn't have a big finish like that. Um, I liked the end of the episode, actually. Um, he earns his black melon of water um, at the end. I, I like it. And I, but I, I kind of see where people are coming from. I don't see where people are coming from who are, like, super negative about it. Because, come on, dude, it was still really good. Um, but, yeah, personally, I, I was happy with it. Um, and I did feel like we were heading, you know, heading somewhere and that we had all the reason in the world to calm down and uh, be patient. And I think uh, those, uh, those feelings uh, were on the money because chapter two was quite a ride. It was, um, I mean, you could do a, like a whole, you could do a 10 minute segment just on um, references. Um but uh, yeah, you've got. I love the. There's a couple of just really nice shots opening up the episode. This kind of really wide shot on Jabba's palace. Um, you see Ming Na Ming Na Wen. You see uh, Fennec Shand as a as, as a tiny dot leading her captive up towards Jabba's pal Jabba's palace. I thought that was that was really cool. And then that shot of them, uh, you know, with the, those iconic palace doors opening and them coming through. I just, I'm just a sucker for it, man. I, I, you know, it's been part of my life, my whole life, the stuff like that, like the doors to Jabba's palace have been there since before I can remember. And um, it's just such a, it, just, it really looks right. They, they got the look of it right, you know. Um, yeah, dropping the, oh yeah, by the way, spoilers. <laughs> Yeah, uh, spoilers if you haven't seen the episode. All right, um, yeah, the this, the captive, uh, you know, one of these uh, famed assassins, the something or others of the Nightwind or whatever. Um, I thought that you know, nice bit of humor there with uh, Ming Ming Na. I'm just, like Ming Na when uh, to an English speaker, that's almost a, like a Star Wars name anyway. But um, uh, yeah, Fennec Shand not impressed by that pedigree p particularly. Um, dropping him in the in the rancor pit and threatening him with death by rancor, only to reveal that there is no rancor, as we know. Uh, that was good, good bit of fun. And you see at the end of that scene, a little rat comes out, and you see this little rat down in the rancor pit. Tell me, people, is that not a direct reference to the rat? That was part of the, uh, like, uh, the molded detritus on the floor 
of the original Kenner uh, Jabba's throne. So, you know, the, the original Kenner Jabba's throne, you would have like Jabba on top and then, you know, not, not movie accurate, but you basically could open up that throne and see the, the bottom of the Rancor pit. And there was a rat amongst the human bones and stuff there. And I, I just, I got to wonder if that was uh, not a reference to that. If so, right on. Good, good job. Um, the, uh, the visit to the mayor. Um, I loved the mayor. Like, that, I'm pretty sure, what, I mean, I am sure. That was, a, I think, a, a physical puppet. The way the eyes blinked and everything definitely looked like animatronics to me. And also, like, this was a slightly hairy Ithorian and all those hairs on there just really sell, sell it as a, like a real physical object. I thought, you know, that set, his office was a really good looking set. Um, and uh, I loved, like, the Ithorian voice mixed with the... Uh, the the, the voice of the translator, which I think is um, Robert R Rodriguez's voice, actually. Um, but just a really cool effect and very, um, very believable. Um, I liked the mayor's kind of calm and collected demeanor. That was really cool. Um, i got to ask a little bit, like, when the guns come out in that scene, the way they hold the guns, like, like I'm not a gun person. I've never owned a gun. I've never actually shot a real gun in my life. I'm not at all a gun nut, but I've watched a lot of movies. <laughs> and when, like when Fennec Shan pulls out her rifle, like it's weird, like her fingers on the trigger, but her thumb is just like resting on the side of the gun. And it just feels like, is that, is that right? Maybe there are, maybe there, <laughs> maybe that's a technique I'm not aware of, but it just, that looked weird to me, and also the way those guys held those guns because like they had these like very thin barrels. It just looked a bit like people who had never held guns almost, and that stuff stands out to me, you know. Um, but cool scene, um, I really liked it. Uh, nice to to get back to the sanctuary and meet Garza Thwip. Is that her name? Anyway, she's great. Uh, all good there. Um, and then we get the arrival of the real culprits for the uh, attempt on their lives. Uh, twin huts. Now, I loved the drums. I loved the, uh, the very overloaded looking, um, what would you call it, palanquin? Or, yeah, the thing that they are being carried on. And the poor overloaded looking servants. <laughs> that was all excellent. Um, the dialogue was great. Um, I liked that. Um, but I got to say, this uh, up to this episode, I, I think they were yet to uh, create a successful CG hut. And I'm sad to say that um, I don't think this uh, does anything to fix that situation. It Actually, those huts it almost looked like they were trying to copy the look of Jabba in episode one. It really, like everything with the, the skin colors and the skin tones and stuff. I just feel like, like just, um, I was 
hanging out with uh, Marie last night, and uh, we, we were planning to watch the Book of Boba Fett together today. And I just like we, I kind of wanted to catch her up a bit on where Boba Boba Fett's at. So we watched that uh, the the whole you know uh, Sarlacc pit scene from Return of the Jedi and. Um, Jabba just looks incredible in that movie. That just how tactile everything is, the sliminess. And again, these like like where was the slime? Where was the I just didn't think they they really worked. Um so is it impossible to make a good CG hut? I mean, maybe it's just me. I've I have purposefully avoided listening to anyone else's reactions or anything yet. Um I mean, I liked their character. Uh, I liked the idea of, um, you know, Bib Fortuna was more of a like a pretender to the throne, and now the uh, the adults are here to come and take over. Um, so yeah, I liked uh, I liked everything about it. I just thought that um, they really needed to go a bit harder with the uh, the sliminess and everything. Maybe Jabba was a, a a slimier hut than normal. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, yeah, but still a cool scene. Um. All right. Now I I I had been enjoying myself up to that point, but once we got into the flashback scenes, going getting getting back with with the Tuscans, that's where the episode really took off for me. Um, I'm a little bit unsure as to where, like, at what point, I mean, I guess when Boba came back with the kid and the kid was claiming to have slewn, is that a word, that creature, and uh, the chief was wise enough to know that that was a croc and that... um, it was actually Boba who had done it, and he was probably, you know, thankful to uh, to Boba for a saving this kid's life, b not trying to take the credit and just letting the kid have this moment, and c like he probably realizes, damn, if he if he was able to fight and kill one of these things, he might be pre- a pretty useful member of the tribe if we can uh, bring him on board, because when you see him uh, in the flashbacks here he's already like he's not a he's not a prisoner anymore but uh, you see him training with this uh this this tuscan that he fought in episode 1 she's teaching him how to fight with a gaffy stick and it's it's great she is awesome i got i'm going to mention this a few times i'm a big fan of hers man like she just has her just like her um her body language her like uh her uh poise i don't know what to call it but that she just moves in a really cool way she is like a good actress i looked her up she's uh mostly a stunt performer she's been in wonder woman and aquaman and justice league and a lot of she's done she's body doubled for a lot of people but I just thought she was a 10 out of 10. And she looks cool as well. Like the outfit is killer. Um, yeah. 
but that that was cool. I liked the idea of um, this uh, this train coming through, and the first time it comes through, I didn't quite get a good enough look at who was shooting at him. But of course, by the time you see that uh, that train come through, you see it's the Pikes, and that makes me start to go. Maybe that is why Boba Fett wants control over a crime syndicate. Maybe he's got people to deal with, and he needs um, he needs the the kind of the backup of a of an entire organization to take him on. What if he and the Pikes are going to war? Woo wee! I am, and the Pikes looked amazing. Oh, the out like the the outfits were killer, and like even with their masks off, they looked good. Big uh, big thumbs up on the pikes. Anyway, uh, but yeah, really like classic Western vibes, obviously with the the almost like a stagecoach kind of uh, thing. I got to say, like um, yeah, we'll get to it. So Boba Boba, you know, sees these uh, these dickheads on their. Um, on their speeders and gets an idea. He goes to apparently that is Toshi Station. I have to go back and relook at the um, at the uh, deleted scenes because I don't recognize Toshi Station by sight. I'm sad to say, uh, but I'm gonna look back and check. Ah, why not? Why not just why not do it right now? I can do it. Disney Plus, yo, it's possible. All right, I'm gonna do that while I'm talking. Um, so uh, yeah, he goes to um, basically nick those uh, those those speeder bikes, and saves apparently Cammy and Fixer from these guys in the process. Now um, I don't know if you know who they are, but uh, in the first Star Wars film, um, there were you know. Uh, there was a lot of stuff cut from the first Star Wars film. Um, a lot of stuff in the beginning where you first meet Luke. Um, so here we go, Toshi Station. Let's have a look. Okay, I'm going to take a look. I'll turn the I'll turn the volume up, see what we got here. What is it, five minutes long? Cool. All right. So... Um, yeah, uh, most of like Luke's early stuff got cut. So him talking to Biggs about like Biggs take, taking off to the academy. He we also see um, footage of uh, yeah Luke at Toshi Station with his friends. Luke's not Mister Popular actually. They basically make fun of him. Um, but two of the people there are Fixer and Cammy. Um, well, come on, get in gear. <laughs> Amazing. So cool to see this old deleted footage. Ah, you know the fun thing fun thing about Star Wars is when you watch Star Wars, it makes you want to watch more other Star Wars. Okay, here we go. Luke's Luke's turning up at Toshi Station. Yeah, there it is. That's what Toshi Station looks like. I mean... This is it? Is that the bar? No. Yeah. That is actually it. 
Wow. I mean, I've, uh, how many times have I watched this um, deleted stuff? Twice, maybe? Look, there they are. There it is. Wow, okay. Well, damn. Right on. Ah, oh, that's good stuff. Oh, it's sad to see Biggs. Biggs is dead, baby. Biggs is dead. <laughs> Cammy and Fixer being mean to, to Luke. Wow. Yeah, there you go. Cammy calling Luke Wormy. Don't worry about it, Wormy. All right. There you go, man. Oh, okay. I'm gonna gonna have to do some screenshotting. So, um, yeah, you see that bit? That fight scene between him and the uh, the thugs, I thought was all right. Um, uh, I mean, a lot of action scenes are action scenes for the sake of action scenes, but they uh, not they can often be made to look like something else. Um, yeah, so this felt a little bit action scene for sake of action scene, but it was cool. Um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, the, the, the actor, the actors they got to portray Cammy and Fixer are good, good matches for what we see in the, in the, um, deleted scenes. So that was, that was cool. Those speeder bikes, man, good designs. Really look, they look super cool. It just makes me wonder, like, what were they thinking with, um, like, Dooku's little goofy scooter thing from episode two? And also, like, Mole's speeder was not particularly cool either. Man, I just feel like the prequels missed the mark design-wise on multiple occasions. Time for some water. Not from a little black uh, melon, though. Mm. All right. So they launched this attack on the train and it's a banging scene. Like this is where you like you really feel like they're stretching the limits of what's possible on TV. Um I got a lot of um you know solo a Star Wars story vibes. Uh yeah, since there was a, a train heist there, but I just thought that the action was dynamic. Um there had been some nice, like, little bits of uh, humor with the Tuscans and the speeder. But A, they just start pulling him apart as soon as he <laughs> brings them, which is really good. And, um, you know, they have some mishaps when they're trying to learn how to ride and stuff. Good stuff. But uh, in this action scene, it's really dynamic, really fast, uh, punchy. Uh, the movement of the scene is very um, just cool and good. Uh, the blaster sounds, the Pike's blaster sounds, because, you know, like, not all blasters in the Star Wars Galaxy sound the same, but these blasters sounded good. Uh, it was cool. Um, again, that uh, Tuscan warrior that is uh, training Boba, she was killer in this scene. Just when she, like, you see her just um, do that leap from the bike directly onto the train, and then she does this, like, Shang-Chi style fight scene through the train. Awesome. And you just see these guys just disappearing, man. She's just taking care of them. 
And then that wacky droid, the driver. Oh, I loved that guy. Uh, you know, it was just really like silly looking. I loved how like once he bails out, he does this like he kind of turns into a spider almost. And I get really good, like slightly goofy, dorky Star Wars design. Good. Really good. And um, yeah, I like this. Uh, you get to you see him sending the pikes back where they came from, saying like, "If you want to come through here, you better talk to the uh, the you know the custodians of this land." Um, yeah, really cool. So, are we going to see the pikes and the Tuscans go at it? Oh, are we going to see? Anyway, okay, I'll get to that. So, it comes back. They're all happy. This is cool. They're like, you're, you're one of us, bro. So, they um, give him this lizard treatment, which was, you know, I just, this, I love Star Wars weirdness. And, uh, yeah, this wizard up the, wizard, lizard wizard up the nose uh, was awesome. And, um that vision, what does the vision mean? I've seen it twice now. I think there's water involved. And the Tuscans mentioned earlier when they used to be, uh, before the oceans dried up, we were in charge, basically. Is this a bit of a dune thing where um, Bob is going to help the Tuscans bring the water back and help the Tuscans retake their planet, basically? Um, that would be kind of cool. Um, you see him, you see, you see him again as a child on Camino, seeing his dad's, uh, seeing Slave One take off and fly away. What does that mean? You see him being like, again, kind of trapped in the Sarlacc pit, but he's also trapped within this tree that he sees growing. What does that mean? There's red eyes glowing around him. Now, interesting thing. In the actual scene, you just see the red eyes surrounding him glowing. But when you see the end um, uh, concept art over the credits, they look very much like Jawas. There, You see the shape of the hoods and it looks like the Jawas' eyes. Um, so that's interesting. So what does that mean? Is it is it Boba breaking free of the tyranny of his past? He's had a tough life. He's seen some shit. You know what I'm saying? Like... It's, um, that's how I read it, really, that he's, like, breaking free of the tyranny of his past and becoming a larger, better person. Um, and that being with the, the Tuscans is, is the catalyst for that. Um, but he comes back and they basically do the welcome to the tribe move and put him in those incredible black robes, which he looks super good in. I, I just want to walk around in that outfit all day, every day, basically. Um, so nice. And you get a, a scene where uh, they help him make his own gaffy stick. He ends up with a fine looking gaffy stick, I have to say. So, yeah. What a, it was a great episode. Like, to me, it had, um, like, thematic, thematic and emotional resonance. It had lots of cool stuff. It had 
the kind of references that make you go, ooh, as a Star Wars fan. Um, but uh, I felt like, like the big thing for me is that, I mean, people who have been into Star Wars for a long time, their their sense of who characters are is is extremely sensitive in a way because we've lived with these characters for so long. So my feeling about who Boba Fett was before episode two, <laughs> when we see the uh, him as a child, but before that, Boba Fett had a very specific flavor to me and I think to other people. Um, so when he turns up, in the Mandalorian. I mean, I've said it before, like I I think that Tamara Morrison's body shape and body language is so different from Jer Jeremy Bullock's that it makes it a little hard to see it as the same character sometimes. But um, Especially so when you see him in that episode of The Mandalorian where he um, comes to Tython. That classic line, I don't want your armor, I want my armor. Fantastic. Um, yeah, that amazing episode. It's such a cool version of Boba Fett. It's like, wow, what, like, look at this guy go. Oh, he's, so, he's super tough, he's super cool. Um, but... I I just felt like but Boba Fett as we know him is this very just like cold emotionless efficient hunter. The way he would he delivered those lines in the original trilogy like uh, as you wish he's no good to me dead. You know this very flat, very monotone, not a lot of feeling there. And so when you see him in The Mandalorian, he's all just like white-eyed, ferocious warrior. And uh, not only that, but then he treats uh, treats Din with uh, quite a lot of respect and understanding. He seems to live by a, a code of honor in a way. And again, they're like, is that Boba Fett really? I mean, it's cool. I like it, but doesn't really sit alongside what we saw in the original trilogy to me. Well, guess what? This show is explaining and showing us he feels different because he is different, because he has gone through a huge transformative experience. Um, he's not the same guy who went into the Sarlacc pit. Um, and it's, uh, I get, you know, it already, like I'm or you've already seen him change a lot. So I guess by the end of this, you're really going to understand why you get that Boba Fett. I mean, even from like a physical standpoint of, he was not so much of a hand-to-hand -hand fighter, you know, I mean, he's carrying blasters and armor full of all sorts of nasties that he can use. Um, but you see him with the Tuscans learning how to fight with the gaffy stick. And um, even from that perspective, they're kind of showing the change that he's going through. So, uh, yeah, 
loved it. Great episode. Um, again, they might, you know, CG huts, I think, could have been better. A couple of things, maybe I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. But overall, I thought it was a banging episode. Fantastic. All right. Um, I have just recently finished J.W. Rinsler's incredible The Making of Return of the Jedi. Finally. I have been reading that thing for a very long time. Um, it's a little sad to finish it in a way because uh, this is that's the end of the uh, original trilogy making of books for me. Um, I can reread them anytime I like, obviously, but um, it really, yeah, has been an amazing experience to uh, read about the making of those films in such detail um, and beautifully, perfectly put together by J.W. Rinsler. The good news is that that makes way for my next big Star Wars book, which is um, uh, The Art of the Mandalorian Season 1, which got delivered some time ago now, but uh, I didn't want to start it until I finished The Return of the Jedi making of book. So I wanted to mention some uh, of the final interesting things that I read in this book. Okay. Um, Again, I just... Again, I want to just draw attention to the fact that um, having a hard time or there being issues on the production does not mean the film is terrible. Um, just because an actor wasn't happy about this or that or whatever doesn't mean, ah, that means the film sucks. Obviously, we'd prefer everyone to come out of the experience saying like, it was amazing, I love everybody, this was a great experience, can't wait to do it again. But, uh, yeah, let's listen to George here speak. This one was grim for me. Just as bad as directing, Lucas would tell a journalist, still without divulging his personal situation, which was, of course, that he was going through a divorce. It's the demands, the time one has to spend, and the worrying. Is it going to work? Why is everything going wrong all the time? And it's my personality. I'm very emotionally involved in it, and I've made a big commitment to it. It's ten years since I started this. Since April 17, 1973, I turned in my first story treatment, May 20. Hmm. So, this one was grim for me. Wow. I mean, when you think of how fun Star Wars is, (laughs) it's unfortunate to hear that it was so unfun for George to make in lots of ways. Very satisfying in lots of ways also, also I'm, I, I suppose, but yeah. All right. Um, another interesting thing was uh, regarding the pace of the editing. Now, um, you know, Star Wars really um, made a lot of progress in terms of the speed of, of film and the speed of editing. Uh, the pacing of a film, I should say. Um, a lot of people felt at the time were like, wow, it's so fast-paced and exciting. These days, episode four does not come across as fast-paced at all, of course. Um, but at the time, 
it was uh, really, yeah, it was faster, more intense. So it's interesting to read this. Again, George speaking. Jedi is paced a little bit faster, Lucas says. Every movie makes a little... Oh, yeah, sorry. Every movie moves a little bit faster. Each one has been taken to the brink. It's as fast as you can make it and still be able to tell a comprehensible story. Jedi is almost incomprehensible in certain areas. It's designed more for kids. It's natural to the way I feel about things. I've always been extremely interested in the cinematic side of motion pictures, and one of the key elements of cinema is editorial pace, just storytelling pace. I have constantly been experimenting with trying to get the story told as quickly as possible while adding in as many entertainment values as one can possibly have to express an idea as swiftly as possible. It's a form of minimalism. That's cool. Uh, Interesting to hear him trying to, yeah, trying to squeeze as much bang per uh, second as possible. Um, This is... I don't know, someone involved with the production, I don't recognize the name, but he says, George was trying to figure out at a certain point how few frames he needed for a cut, Farrar would say. I think his theory was that he could get below 14 frames for a cut and it would still register. I was involved with experimenting for him and I was chasing that idea and shot 21 elements in one night. (laughs) TIE fighters flying through the frame as quickly as possible. I think we proved that it would register in the mind. But did it cut in? I think we used some of it, but the shot was longer. So, yeah, basically saying they actually were, during the production of of, uh, Return of the Jedi, experimenting with how short a cut can be and still uh, be comprehensible to the viewer. That's really interesting to me. I mean, you, uh, I think specifically they're talking about the end battle scene, really, where you have all these ships, like pff, hundreds of ships on screen sometimes, it seems like, just hurling themselves around. Um, yeah. Cool to hear that they, you know, that stuff didn't happen by accident. They really were trying to get the, the, those kind of um, action scenes as fast as possible. Cool to hear. All right. Something that I think if it had been put into a, a, a modern Star Wars movie, everyone would be like, uh, about it. But the Tarzan, the Tarzan sound effect in Return of the Jedi when uh, Chewie swings onto that ATST, the, oh, that one, that wasn't George. <laughs> um, People working, uh, so there was a, one woman apparently whose job it was to kind of like uh, pick che- sounds to match up with Chewbacca's dialogue, basically. And um, this is Ben Burt speaking. We put it in as a joke and thought it would never get by George, but it was about the only thing he commented on in the whole reel. Oh, it's great. Leave it, Burt says. <laughs> so it wasn't George's idea to put that Tarzan uh, thing in but he did like it and want it to stay speaking of ben burt um this is cool to read so uh, obviously um 
one of the most iconic scenes in Return of the Jedi is the speeder bike chase. Now, uh, the speed of it, the style, it's all great. Um, but the sound is definitely one of the the high points of that, that sequence. Um, I would like to um, just read this bit uh, where Ben Burt talks about uh, or that talks about Ben Burt's approach to the sound for that sequence. Here we go. Burt's tonal masterpiece, however, was the bike chase. Following up on thoughts formed early in his life about how sound effects were akin to musical instruments, Burt crafted a complex, layered audio track so perfectly tied to the fine-tuned, fast-paced editing that the sequence became a harmonious and lovely tone poem. Quote, I wanted to show a sequence where sound could be the backbone of the drama, he would say. In the bike chase, the sounds themselves had to provide a great deal of the energy, but it's tricky because you want it to build in intensity, yet it can't just get louder and louder and louder. You have to have the effect of drama and suspense in the sound without just turning up the volume. So a lot of experimentation went into the sequence as I tried to give it contrast. Loud, a moment of quiet, then punching it with something, orchestrating the sound effects like you might orchestrate music. Mmm! Again, like... Something that contributes massively to how great that scene is, how great the movie is, and it's not a happy accident. That's people, like, sitting there and really really thinking things through and really putting everything into making it as great as possible. All right. The final thing I want to read from uh, the, the making of The Return of the Jedi is this fun little thing about um, test screenings. So very common thing, of course, in Hollywood uh, to do test screenings of films to see if there's anything that the filmmakers are not uh, seeing that needs to get fixed. Fun to hear some of the raw reactions from people at the time. Um, we'll start with a, a guy, some something Rothman. I can't remember if he was a producer or I can't remember his role. But uh, let's start with him. He says, The theatre went nuts, just nuts, Rothman says. It was one of those great moments. Then the movie starts to play and I'm sitting right in the middle of the theatre. It was exciting. You could see that there were slow points in it, but the crowd was going with it. And when we finally got to that point where Vader picks up the Emperor and throws him down the well, the audience went crazy. They were cheering like mad. It worked so well. It was just one of those things where you knew that it was a great historic moment in the film. There was euphoria after that screening. Wow! Isn't that cool? I mean, that... Like, honestly speaking, the only thing I would change in Return of the Jedi is to make the Ewoks into Wookiees, as was originally planned. Other than that, I think the film totally kicks ass in every way, basically. And and I like the Ewoks, actually. I don't dislike them, but I just think that... Yeah, if it had been Wookiees, it would have uh, done a lot for Chewie's character and it would have uh, been more believable that they... And also to have this kind of like the slaves of the Empire rising up kind of deal. You know, you could set them up as 
slaves being used on the on the second Death Star or whatever. You know, it, I think it, it could have been really strong. Um, and they still could have been comedic and cute because Chewies are uh, Chewies. Wookies are still cute, you know. Yeah. So, um, uh, but yeah, I just, I love the film, of course. And that sequence with uh, Luke, Vader and the Emperor is so good. And when Vader does finally pick up the Emperor, I just think the timing of it, everything, it's just like, mm, it just sings. It's so, so good. So, yeah. So again, thank you, J.W. Rinsler, for putting, I can't even imagine how many hours into these making of books. They are absolute essentials. All right, folks, it's time to play What's That Sound? All right, we're going to start with number seven. What is this? Yeah, number 76, which is the year I was born. And that's... All right, calm down. That's blasters of some kind. Let's take a look. Uh, ah. Oh, wow, those are Thai... TIE cannons. TIE fighter cannons, apparently. Cool. All right. Let's find another one. Hmm. That was number 56. I reckon that's the sound... Listen again. I reckon that's the sound of the trash compactors, like, starting to... Compact or whatever that makes the Dinoga go away. 56. Ah, okay. No, I was wrong. That was a Death Star door. Hmm. Okay. Try another one. I mean, is that... Is that just like a basically blaster fire on the Death Star? You know, like just... Luke Han and Leia shooting at the at stormtroopers. Yeah, that's what it was. Okay, got that one. Let's try another quick. Let's try another sound. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Is that the Imperial probe droid, like lifting out of that uh, the canyon, like the thing where it lands? Or let's see, let's look it up. Uh huh. Oh, it's the Emperor's hologram sound. Well, I was way off on that one. <laughs> Good sound though. Lord Vader. Blah 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 blah. Yep. Sounds about right. All right, very nice. To finish off, let's again uh, get back to our The Last Jedi rewatch. All right, let's see where we're up to. I think. Oh! Luke telling Ray he's gonna throw down three lessons for her. Good stuff. All right, so now here we see. Hmm. 
uh, resistance ship, the only one left. I guess we're going to see the introduction of Vice Admiral Holdo here. This is some classic, you know, rebel war room type uh, stuff. Poe looking handsome. Just, just be handsome, Poe. All right, buddy. Yeah, so here we have Holdo. This was a controversial character. <laughs> I guess we'll get more into that later. Uh, let's just, this is our first introduction to her. I mean, who doesn't love Laura Dern? Um, people are a little bit like, uh, what's with the evening wear and the purple hair? That's not very military leaderish, but Mon Mothma, yo, this is um, extremely common for this bunch, apparently. I think she's good. I like I like the character. Um, about yeah, there's a lot of things to talk about with this character, but we'll get there when we get there. But it's it's nice, you know, like um, pose a bit like, yeah, not what I expected. So I gotta say, because of, okay, if you didn't like the Last Jedi, that's that's fine. Um, but there were a lot of dude bros who were upset about certain things, and scenes like this where you've got Admiral Holdo surrounded by three women and none of those are like there as eye candy they're all like normal looking they're not there to sexy up the shot and she's talking down to him that didn't sit well with some some people uh, I don't mind it at all of course um, I think that People feel a bit like, why isn't she just telling him the plan? Why is she being a dick about it? Just tell him what you're doing and then that would just like solve a whole lot of issues, you know. But um, I don't know, like Poe had proved himself to be not very uh, reliable. I mean, he went against direct orders from Leia. I don't think she feels like she can trust this guy really. All right, now we get the introduction of Rose. This is a lovely scene. Rose, she's just lost her sister. It's super sad. Um, Kelly Marie being extremely likable in this whole scene. <laughs> I got Finn about to do a, do a runner. You're Finn. The Finn. The Finn. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, she's cool. I like her a lot. I like this, uh, how she's so starstruck meeting the Finn. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I, I guess, like, I don't have super much to say about this, but... Um, it's like a nice introduction. 
Um, in a way, because, you know, Finn's been part of, it, you know, the, the Force Awakens where you see him be a hero. It's a little bit like, why is he... Um, why is he not being a hero still? Well, he he was a hero for a specific reason in the last film. He he just wanted to protect. He wanted to save Ray. He wasn't there for any kind of like larger purpose. Um, so now that you see him basically trying to jump jump ship to save himself, yes, but to uh, try to protect Ray, um, he hasn't made that step. Yet, where he he's he's left the first order, but he hasn't taken that step to join a um, a cause larger than himself. Now, of course, this is his uh, his arc in this film. Um, I love they have good good use of uh, steam and stuff in this uh, engineering area to give it some atmosphere. I like that in the background you see other people in the brig that she has captured trying to. Dessert. Now, I think I'm more, I more or less have like love everything in this movie up to this point. But um, this is where it gets into a little bit of uh, what's it called um, exposition and like obvious exposition to me. Like, exposition is always an issue for screenwriters, I guess, but they try to hide it and tuck it in, uh, fold it in with other stuff so it doesn't feel like exposition. But this feels... I don't know, they just both reach this, like, the same... What do you would you say? They reach the same conclusion at the same time and like, wow, well, we can do this and no, 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 and it just feels a bit, like, convenient and a bit quick and... Yeah, it's uh, not my favorite bit. And then you go into like another exposition scene. Do you know what I mean? It goes like you have them working this thing out and then it goes directly into this scene where they explain, explain their idea to Poe. Poe then does this weird phone call to Maz who for some reason is uh, yeah this is uh, not one of my favorite bits of the, of the film I can sit and enjoy the visual quality of it but um, hmm. mm, 3PO is looking nice and shiny got Leia in the medical bay her fingernails are looking beautifully manicured. All right. I don't have anything else to say about this scene, really. Uh, hang on. I'm going to, like, hit the fast forward on this bit. Oh, yeah. this. Okay, here we go. This scene with Maz, like... Her whole organization that has been there for thousands of a thousand years apparently got just demolished by the First Order and now she's in a union dispute, quote-unquote, where she's actually in a firefight. She's like shooting at people. Is union dispute a nickname for something? 
But it's weird. I, I would have liked more Maz in this movie. She was such a good character in The Force Awakens. And then there's this, like, sex joke, which suggests that Maz has boned this uh, codebreaker. I guess Maz is just out there, you know, getting it done in all kinds of ways. Also, this thing of, like, you'll know him because he's we he'll be wearing a, a red plum bloom. Sometimes... I Plum Bloom? Is that Star Wars, really? I don't know. That just doesn't feel like something from this galaxy. Sorry. Alright. I'm going to pause here, sadly, because this is where the fun begins, as they say. We're back on Akto. I love everything on Akto, but uh, that means we've got something to look forward to next episode. Alright. I uh, can't wait for, episode, for chapter three of The Book of Boba Fett and to get back to our Last Jedi rewatch. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been a Star Wars fun for everyone, especially me. 